Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of Ganado Meets, where Ganado team members meet sector leaders to inform and discuss topics of interest. I am Nigel McAuliffe, Associate at Ganado Advocates Shipping Practice, and for today's session of Ganado Meets Maritime, I am very grateful to have with me at our studio representatives of GBA, Mr. Randy Grieb, Managing Director of the Logos Hope, and Captain James Barry, the current Captain of the Logos Hope. Randy Grieb hails from the state of Wisconsin in the USA and has worked with GBA ships since 2007. Randy and his wife Kim originally joined Logos Hope as lead designers for the visitor experience deck and found the ship would become their home. After studying business and marketing at university, Randy worked in his family's retail business but later stopped to pursue overseas humanitarian work. Randy served as partnerships director and acting director before becoming managing director of the floating committee in March 2020. Captain James Berry became Logos Hope's master in December 2019. Before joining Logos Hope, he was a crew member on Logos 2 in 2007. Over the years, James returned to the vessel for several stints. As well as seeing how the ship's crew can help meet needs around the world, he worked his way up to oversee the deck department and eventually take the helm of the vessel. In between volunteering with Logos Hope, James has worked for a commercial shipping organization. He is widely experienced in various maritime roles and a variety of, mar- of vessel types. As master of Logos Hope, James is responsible for the management, safety and security of the ship, for her crew and passengers and for compliance with international maritime laws. Welcome, Director. Welcome, Captain. Welcome to our studios. It's been a pleasure working with you. It's been a pleasure seeing you here in Malta and coming on board the Logos Hope. To start off our podcast with, I have a a question to the director. Can you give us a bit of a brief background as to how GBA started, how the idea of the Logos Hope started? Where did all of this come from? Well, our founder really had a high interest in books and education. That was one of his primary things. And actually, years before we started this company with ship, we were moving books by land, literally from UK all the way down to India. Can you imagine these old trucks? We'd fill these trucks up and drive them that whole day. If you look at a map, that's a long way. And then I think in several years into it, they thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And uh, not long after that began, of course, our first ship, the Logos. And... Uh, like the first, second port we pulled in, opened the doors, and the people came by the thousands. We thought, wow, this is really quite amazing. Because, you know, a lot of people actually never get on a ship. They never walk on ships. So, number one, it's interesting to walk on a ship. Number two, rarely do they need meet people from around the world, internationals. Now, of course, here in Malta, you are kind of the center of the world in a sense. So a lot of nationalities do come here. But I can assure you, in many countries I've been to, there's not a lot of people that travel the world to some of these countries. So for them, it's very interesting to walk on board and actually meet someone from Australia or Papua New Guinea or Japan or Brazil. doesn't matter. You name the country. So that in itself is unique. So we saw the uniqueness of the opportunity to move from port to port, country to country, and uh, we saw the value of it. And a lot of our value we find in story, the stories when we come back and meet people just Two nights ago, I can tell you, it was 10.45. It was 15 minutes after we closed the ship, and there was two people sitting on the staircase waiting for the ride home. I said, hi, my name is Randy. They said, we know, you're the director. I said, well, what is your name? And they told me. And I said, uh, have you ever thought about living on a ship? They said, actually, we have lived on a ship. We've lived on one of your ships. I'm like, what do you mean? They said, well, we were children, and underneath their badges, we all wear badges, they had their badge, 
as children because their parents from Malta actually served on the Dulos, which is actually uh, part of your company, you know. And so as children, they went to school and they lived on one of our other ships. That was very unique and they had so many amazing stories to tell even as children living on board. So history of our ships go back quite a long ways. And, and, and when that started, of course, then it went, I don't know I, how many countries we've, 150, I think over 100 countries we have been in with our four, now five ships actually. Well, the fifth ship will be starting its sailing sometime next year. But So it's kind of an interesting start. I would say it's for sure very interesting. Uh, even for me personally, I remember visiting the Logos Hope around 13 years ago when I was a, a kid myself. So mm-hmm. obviously to hear the stories is, is quite interesting. But if we had to go back to the roots of GBA, what does GBA stand for? What is GBA's mission? What is GBA striving to achieve through its through its operations? I mean, we keep it simple. We have, a, you know, like GBA actually stands for good books for all, basically. And it's true because we believe readers are leaders, leaders are readers. And if a nation is going to rise, it has to read, it has to be educated. You have to learn and not just about your own nation, but about the cultures of the world and, and of course, the economics and all the other medicine and all these other people pieces of the puzzle. So so there's power in education, there's power in reading. And we kind of use three words to describe what we do. They're simple, but they're profound. And we share knowledge, help, and hope. So obviously the knowledge part of it is we're the largest floating book fair in the world. And I have a question for you, Nigel. Do you know how you become the largest floating book fair in the world? By being the only one. There you go, (laughs) being the only one in the world. Actually, there are other ships that we have met around, smaller ships that do regional books up the rivers and down the Amazon and so forth. But uh, we are the largest floating book fair in the world, and that's, that's a draw in itself. So number one, I mean, education and reading is critically important for the world, for all, good books for all. The second word we use is we share help, knowledge, help, and hope. And even as we looked at the last two years, over the years of COVID, there were very few passenger ships. You look at your list, how many passenger ships actually continue to sail during COVID? But if you look at our schedule and our sail history, we continue to sail because we brought help. We brought kind of humanitarian disaster relief to countries that were great in need, even in the middle of COVID. So we went to an island in the Bahamas that was leveled by one of the strongest hurricanes in history. And hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people lost their lives. So we went to help. We assisted with simple things like eyeglass testing and some dental things. We did some, some repair. We, we worked on a school. We put a roof on a fire station. We just assisted people in their need. And uh, that brings me actually to the next word. And of course, in that, we also went to another island country. I can show you a picture of a volcano erupting as we're there. It was pretty dramatic. Wasn't it, Captain? I mean, we will never forget that moment when this thing erupts like right off the bow of the ship. We weren't in danger, but the island was for sure. So we were able to go back to that country and assist. So the third word is hope. And if you think of people that go through these type of disasters, they need hope. Uh, And and that's a third word. All you have to do is open your social media, open your newspaper, just read of the needs of the people of the world, your neighbors, 
if you know your neighbors and, and the situation they're in, people need hope. And that is another thing that we bring. So if we think of Good Books for All, we're way more than just books. Uh, we're sharing knowledge, help, and hope around the world. And having sailed on the ship a long time, my wife and I, been to many countries, 120 countries of the world, I can tell you we've been able to bring all three in a very significant way in all these countries. A question to the captain now. We have been working and assisting the Logos Hope over the last year. The Logos Hope was built in 1973, approximately 40 years ago now. How did GBA end up acquiring this vessel and how did the vessel change since it was acquired? So Yeah, thank you. This, um, yeah, whenever we're looking to get a new ship, they actually put together a team that searches and goes looking. Um, we don't haven't so far built any new ships, so we're looking at used ships. And so there's a, a search team that works through a ship broker. Um, because of moving all the people around, we've tended to look at passenger vessels. Um, so at the time that they acquired the ship, which was before I was with the organization, uh, uh, the search team was looking at a few passenger vessels. And after a while, the process narrowed down, particularly to that ship, the Nerona, as she was then. She was, as you say, she was originally built in 1973 as a, a car ferry, a railroad ferry. And she used to run, uh, well, originally to Sweden. She was built uh, when she was built. And then she was bought and ran from Denmark to the Faroe Islands for most of her working life. So that's sort of what she looked like when we got um, a 30-year-old Roro ferry, which was probably not so impressive to look at. And uh, the refit was really quite long and extensive because there was a lot of conversion works to be done um, to make a car ferry into what it is today. Uh, the uh, the old stern ramp was was taken off and welded up, and the the car deck where the cars and trucks used to be, um, the very aft section of it became a theatre because of the height, and a new deck was put in. So the the original car deck underneath is mostly the book hold, the book storage, at least at the forward part. There's a few other bits down there as well, and then the new deck that we put in is the visitor experience deck that people go round, and that's where you've got uh, the bookshop. Um, called the Journey of Life, the Eye Cafe, and all of those parts are on that deck. Uh, we also added some other decks and some extra things, like the school was built completely new and put on what used to be their helicopter pad. So it was an, a very extensive refit. We also had to change all the cabins because, of course, we have families living on board and things like that. And uh, the ferry cabins were not suitable as long-term accommodation for families that live on board for maybe a couple of years at a time. So it was an extensive process carried out, first in Denmark, where she was when we bought her, and then uh, the, we went to a shipyard in Croatia for most of the works, and then she came back round to Germany and Denmark for the final stages of outfitting. I'd imagine that the, the refits happen quite regularly, that, the sh- that there are works ongoing on the vessel on a regular basis to provide better facilities, to provide for maybe newer attractions on board. I don't know. It's not been too many in terms of that. When we did the initial refit, the focus was very much on getting the accommodation and the the public areas ready, on getting the ship into service. In fact, when we sailed, the theatre that I mentioned was sort of an empty space, and during the first tour, we outfitted and built the theatre. One thing that in some ways got passed over during some of that refitting was the engine room and the engine facilities, um, So we did install the air conditioning a little bit later as we started to go into hotter climates and 
then there's been a couple of times we've had to take the ship out of service for a period of time to renew sections of the machinery and the engine room and the plumbing. There have been a few interior changes, but there's not any vast changes actually from when she first sailed um, in 2009. It's You would recognize the ship. I say a few little details. The engine room you probably wouldn't recognize, but not too many people see that. Well, so. the engine room, yeah, as you're saying, it, not a lot of people manage to see that. I am one of the lucky individuals that yeah. have managed that, that opportunity. A question to you now, Director. The Logos Hope proudly flags the Mortis flag. Mm-hmm. How is the experience with the Mortis registry, with the Mortis authorities, the working relationship, how is that? I mean, we couldn't pick a better company, a better organization, a better nation than Malta. I mean, like, what more can I say? It's been a long-standing relationship. You have just been amazing. You've assisted us through every up and down and every corner along the way. And I can just speak on behalf of my CEO and our senior leaders on shore, Captain and I, we just can't say thank you enough. And that's the beauty of, of partnership. We, we really survive off of partnerships. We come into different nations and we partner with, you know, government agencies and governments themselves and so forth. But, you know, one partnership that stays with us all the time, of course, is that of our flag state. So you have made it just so easy for us in a sense. And so... Um, Sometimes I struggle how to say thank you, but I've learned how to say thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Muchas gracias. (laughs) Very good to hear. It's it's always good to hear positive feedback about our registry and all the work that they're they're doing. Um, I've also seen a number of articles and individuals representing the authority that have published articles stating that that the Logos Hope is in Malta back again. Mm -hmm. So obviously there is that support as well, not just from the professional side also, but from the personal side and from those, from uh, an individual's element. A question now to you, Captain. The Logos Hope was lost in Malta, as we mentioned, around 13 years ago. Some time has passed. Um, the vessel's back in Malta. It was back in Malta in, in July. What was the purpose of this particular voyage? Um, what was the idea behind coming back to Malta now after all this time? Yeah, it's been a great pleasure, actually, to be back in Malta. I've, it's my second visit with actually with the ships uh, to Malta, and we, we love it every time. It's, uh, the, the 13 years is not because we... Uh, we didn't want to come back, but rather there's so many other parts of the world. Uh, as an organization, we had two ships, in fact, when the ship was last in Malta. And then, uh, or about that time, we went from two ship down to one. And with the world being what it is, you know, we, uh, there's also in that, let me say, that we, we try to avoid sailing backwards and forwards too much, you know, because I know for, and that's one of the, the mind shifts, if you will, with, with Logos Hope. You know, for other ships, you pick up a cargo or passengers or whatever and you make your money by sailing, whereas as for us, the objective is to be in port as much as possible. So we, as we sail in different port-to-port around the world, we try and stop in all these countries where our route takes us. And just sadly, we have not been back to the Mediterranean since, since that last visit in 2010. Um, so on that... In that time, the ship was on its way from the Caribbean. They came across to West Africa. They went through the Mediterranean, stopping all the countries there, through Suez, out to East Asia. Um, We were in Asia for a while. That's quite a big part of the world, and then came back. But on the way back, they went round Africa, round, round the Cape rather than through the Mediterranean, 
and then across to the Caribbean, South America, the Caribbean again, and, uh, and then West Africa again, and now back in the Mediterranean. So, yeah, that's, that's the reason we're back in Malta now. As I say, we, th we do these routes by region to region of the world, so it's whenever we're in the Mediterranean. And I hope it won't be 13 years until we're next back in Malta. <laughs> Hopefully not. But uh, that's where we're, we're headed through the Mediterranean now. Very interesting. And whilst you were here in Malta, did you undertake any form of projects here in the country? Uh, voluntary projects that you might have assisted with? Yes, know. we've done numerous already. We, um, I mean, it might be interesting for your listeners to know how we operate on board. Like our crew members are all volunteer. They all have a job on board. We don't like, we're not like a cruise ship. We don't take passengers. Everyone that has a bed on board basically works except for moms and kids that go to school every day. But other than that, everyone has a role and they work five days a week. And on day six, we send them off the ship and they do projects that we have planned prior to arrival. So I, like your past president, we've met with her and have done, even today we had a group of children on board. Uh, we have been working in some migrant refugee camps. We've been doing Eng uh, English as a second language, teaching that. Um, I should have brought the list, but I can tell you there's probably a good half a dozen that we not only do once, but do multiple times. We go back again and again. We like to do that as we make friendships uh, in these places and so forth. So um, that's this time, our visit, that's, it's been really productive. And yes, so we, so everyone, Everyone gets to go onshore and do something unique. Well, you managed to do a lot of us. You've been here now for three weeks, I believe, yes. approximately. Yeah. Question to you, Captain. As we mentioned, the vessel is approximately 40 years old. Um, how do you ensure that, how do you as Captain, as GBA, how do you ensure compliance of the vessel with the latest safety requirements, environmental requirements, technological requirements, a lot of requirements in the shipping world? How do you ensure compliance with all of these requirements? Yeah, thank you. We have uh, quite a big team on shore, actually, for a vessel this size. So there's quite a big technical team that do keep in touch, um, particularly with class. So again, we have a good connection with, with RENA, uh, where our ships are classed with and then through the, the technical notices, and they will review them and work out what we need to do uh, to stay compliant with this. And then, I mean, there's some areas where, and this is where actually where Malta is very helpful to us as the flag state, because there's some of the regulations that are aimed more at commercial operations, which they can then give us an exemption for, because it's not really relevant to what we do uh, in that sense as, a, as an NGO, as a charity. We're not there as a sort of... Um, money-making entity. So that's very helpful as well. But from that sense, of we're reliant on those good good relationships with a good technical team on shore and good relationships with class and flag state just to advise us of what we do need to do to keep the ship sailing. When we were on board the vessel uh, in July, um, we became aware that uh, we were informed that the vessel has a crew of approximately 400 people or can have a capacity of up to 400 people and that all the 400 individuals are volunteers, which is amazing. How do you manage to ensure compliance with training requirements, ensuring that these individuals are trained in what they do? It's, it's very interesting to understand how that mechanism works. 
yeah, that really is quite an interesting mechanism. And to me, it's like a minor miracle that it happens at all. Um, so you really have hit on one of the key things there. I tell people that we're a training ship, not because we want to be a training ship, but because of the nature of how the organization runs. We are a training ship. Now, we don't train the officers, the engineers, um, the school teachers, the welders, things like that, the doctor. All of those have to be recruited professionally. So we have somebody on shore who's basically whose job it is to recruit all of these and make sure that I have enough qualified officers, engineers and all the rest. But that's only a fraction of the crew. Um, yeah, 442 is the maximum number of crew we can sail, maximum number of people we can sail with, rather. Unfortunately, we don't need all of that lot to crew the ship, um, but there's a certain minimum overhead. So like I said, we're a training ship. We take the intakes of volunteers twice a year. Um, they go through a, a screening process on shore as well because they need to have a certain degree of physical capacity and um, so on in order to be able to function on a ship to check that it's a good environment for them as well. We also run uh, something called the Mar Marine Training Centre, um, which is run by a former captain of the ship, actually, and it's, uh, he works closely with Malta, Transport Malta, so it's actually accredited like a, a marine training college to run some of the basic training courses. So he works with a team of trainers, of approved trainers. Actually, a lot of them are our former captains and officers from the from the from our ships, or one or two of them actually work in other maritime colleges on shore as well. And every six months or so, when we have an intake, he flies all of these trainers out to the ship and does a training course. And so all the people that join from uh, more than six months that come as this part of this longer intake, they go through this marine training. They get their training qualifications. They get their medical exam. All the rest of that in place so that when they come on the ship, they've got the very basic qualifications. But you can't just take somebody off the street and then put them through some training courses and have them serve as seafarers. Uh, so probably the key, some of the key things to me are the, the deck and the engine ratings that we have. So when they come on, they get all of their basic training, and they come on board and they get signed on as trainees, and they do a, a sea time reduction course. We have an approved sea time reduction course. But then after, a f when they've got a few months of sea time, they can become nav watch ratings or engine watch ratings, and they can start to build up their experience like that. And then when they've been on working with us for a bit longer, around about the one-year mark, we bring trainers back again to do further training courses. And that's one of the reasons why we look at volunteers to come for two years, is that for some of the roles, they're going to spend almost the first year gaining some, going through training, gaining some experience, and they can only really take up the role in the second year. So it's a, it's a pretty vital manning requirement as well. Can I add a little story? I'm a storyteller. <laughs> so one day we were in South America and I asked the captain, Captain, I want to be able to steer this ship. I want to be a helmsman. And he said, well, Randy, if you want to direct, if you want to be a helmsman, you're going to have to get some proper training. So I went through the training. I did the hours at sea. I do them usually late at night. And I kind of picked my countries, you know, as the Panama Canal and then Chile and a few hours in Argentina, a few hours in Brazil, you know, coming into the, 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 the mouth of the Amazon up there in the northern part. And finally, I had put all my hours in and it was time for me to get my certificate. So one morning we gathered all the ship's company and the captain put his stripes on and the other officer. It was a big deal. And they brought me up there and they had this paper like this and they held it up. It was my certificate that now as a helmsman I could actually 
steer the ship. And on the paper, they call me Captain Zigzag. That's because I'm always at the wheel telling stories, and the ship would go like this. <laughs> Not quite like that. You did have my name on there, but anyway, that was a little story that when I was on the bridge steering the ship, they would call me Captain Zigzag. Zigzag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, as director and captain as well, form part of the 60 nationalities mm. that have assisted on board the Logos Hope. With regards to the volunteers and the, and the crew, seafarers, over these two years, for instance, do you see a shift in their area of expertise? So, for instance, if someone's uh, working in the engine room, do you possibly see some, that some of them move up to the deck? Do you see the shift of, as time passes by, maybe with more training that they acquire? Yeah, I mean, some of them, they do uh, a year and then they say, actually, I'm in the wrong place. I want to go work somewhere else. Or they have some other skills. You know, some of the people come with other prior qualifications. But, you know, some of them, they say, you know what, I never considered working at sea, but actually I want to do this. So we have people then who've then gone on to do a, a career, either working with the qualifications that they got with us, one or two of them, depending which country they're from, or they decide they want to go and train and come back as an officer or an engineer. And, um, you know, some of them work during their time on board. Some of them stay a lot longer than two years. They, that's sort of the basic. And after that, we, we review and they would take some time at home and come back. But there's people that have worked in sort of five, six, seven different departments on board and, and built up a range of skills in different areas. So essentially, to start volunteering on board the Logos Hope, for instance, you do not need any qualifications, and then you are trained on board, and then you take it from there, and guidance is provided by GBA and the Logos Hope. Correct, yeah. right? Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, my uh, youngest daughter lived on board with us as a child from about 8 to 13 years old, and then went back uh, to the States, went to high school, came back as a crew member. That was a special time for us. And she became the head cashier in the book fair. So there was, uh, you know, on any particular day, we could have several thousand, five, six, seven, even eight, ten thousand people visit the ship in a day. In fact, maybe it'd be interesting for you to know, in our two years in the Latin world, in South America, two years, our average daily visitor count was 4,300 people. That's average every day for two years. And that's open six days a week, of course, not sailing days. And so at any given time, there could be a fair amount of cash there. And so here she's this young lady, just a teenager, and she's, and she's a head cashier with thousands of people coming through there. And, I, you know, I compare my youngest to my two older daughters, and they didn't have that experience living on the ship. They grew up on an island, and, uh, but she grew up on the ship in just very, very different, very different worldview, very different understanding of kind of how the world works and so forth. But even there, we saw her just grow dramatically. Just living in community with so many um, different nationalities and now having made friends with people across the world, it's, it's quite interesting. That's and that, and that's, that story goes with everyone on board. They all make, you know, continental, cross-the-continent friends. It's quite amazing. Obviously, the world has passed from a pandemic now, in two years. Um, as you stipulated before, the Logos Hope continued to operate during the past two years. However, 
how was the experience dealing with the pandemic, the voyages, the, the relationship with the crew, obviously taking a lot of safety measures at the end of the day. How did all of that work over the past two years? Yeah, maybe you have more, better, more statistics than I do about how many seafarers were actually captive on their ships around the world. We actually sailed through. I mean, we sailed through numerous, we saw numerous passenger ships, big mega cruise ships shut down, lights are off, just to drift out in the middle of the sea for months and months and months. It was amazing. But you know, between the captain and I and our team, we actually kept the ship sailing. Now, like, yes, we had our moments of long lockdowns where we couldn't step on the quayside. And for some people that feel maybe they're held against their will, they were, in a sense, because there were no airplane. We couldn't fly them home to their 60 nationalities. So they were on the ship. So often I use this little terminology. When the world gives you lemons, make lemonade. So we made the best of what we could. And we pivoted inside the ship of what we did, how we did life on board. We did actually extra trainings. I did trainings on leadership. There was just, we did cross-divisional moving. So, so some of those that worked in our, our galley would go and work in deck a little bit, and the deck would go work in the laundry, and laundry would go work somewhere else. So we did kind of this cross-divisional, and actually they enjoyed it. It was quite interesting. In fact, they would say, wow, you know, to those working down the laundry, we didn't know you worked so hard down there. And the laundry would say, we didn't know you worked so hard in the galley, you know. They, they got an appreciation of the work that was done across the ship. So we pivoted. That's what you have to do is pivot and make the best out of what you have. And then when the world opened a little bit and we were able to actually get vaccinated, the whole ship, then we were able to move into other countries and do some of this humanitarian disaster relief type thing. Then, then it changed again. And then it changed again. We moved to West Africa. We actually started going on shore, bringing people on the ship, doing what we've always done for for many, many years. So it is, it's been a unique season for us. We're delighted that it now is an endemic. And you know, I don't think any of us think it's over, but we've learned a lot and we're, we are trudging forward and not looking back. Yes, you look back, you learn, but you, we continue to move forward. Maybe if I just add something to that, you know, I think for, for many of us that time during the pandemic, when especially in the first few months, and, you know, for the first three months, we were actually locked down in Jamaica. That's where we happened to be when it struck. There was nobody on or off. And there was, for some, that sense of, you know, oh, we're going through this thing that's much harder than what families back home or whatever, because you can't walk out to the park or whatever. You only have the confines of the ship. But uh, as Randy was saying, you know, uh, the lemonade that we made with those lemons, you know, we had a, a really good community. We had a lot of in-person contact. And I think for the people that left afterwards, when they looked back and started realizing what life had been like onshore, for people stuck in their houses or they heard people stuck on other ships under very strict lockdowns, and uh, they were able just really to appreciate what we had in that time and think that really, rather than we were stuck in a difficult place, we were actually in some ways sheltered from a lot of the impacts and we were in a we were really lucky to be in the place where we were during the pandemic, during the early months. And for you as captain of the vessel, how did all of this work from technical and a safety point of view with, with all of those individuals on board the vessel, obviously, as crew? You know, it was a, a huge challenge. 
really. Uh, a really big challenge sometimes. Obviously, my concern is always for the, the well-being of the crew in all its different aspects, but we also have to comply with all the different restrictions, regulations, and, yeah, I... I, I can't say too much, really. There's, there's so many different situations, different challenges, different hardships. Um, but we've had a, a good team that's really pulled together, and I think particularly for the leadership team that we have on board as well. Uh, I think in that sense, I'm quite lucky in that we do it together. You know, we work together as a team to keep the community healthy and functioning and meet whatever the different restrictions are. It's not that we go on a standard route that we know where we are. Almost every port we go to is the first time. So we're always finding out what are the restrictions, the regulations, all of these aspects. I mean, also from the crewing side, it's been a challenge. Um, there were various people that had to leave for different reasons. We don't want to keep anybody we don't need, you know, if they've passed their time, we don't want to keep them. Um, but we've always just about, sometimes by a thread, managed to keep enough technical crew on board to meet the safe manning requirements to keep the, the crew sailing. Um, we had a number of crew developed other non-COVID medical issues during 2020, which was perhaps one of my big challenges. Um, the chief engineer and a couple of officers had to leave quite suddenly for different medical reasons. Um, but yeah, we've we kept going somehow or other, and, uh, and now we're in the clear and we have a good Team, so good. Everyone's healthy. <laughs> yes, everyone's healthy. <laughs> but you know, even uniquely, as Captain mentions that, think of it. Uh, we were held inside a ship. There were 419 of us on March 12th. I remember the day and the date. I was the last one to walk up the gangway. I was in meetings in the states. I rushed back, and that was it. And my wife's father was put in hospital, so she stayed in Florida for a couple of days. She said, I'll catch an airplane and I'll be there in a couple of days. Well, guess what? Airplane shut down and we were, we were separated for five months, so she wasn't on board during that time. Very, very interesting. But think about it. We had a closed door. We were not connected at all to COVID. We, had no, we were not connected to the outside world, where some of you probably were, had to stay in your homes, couldn't go on your thing, couldn't go to any restaurants, all of that shut down. But we lived in community. I mean, we had some really fun. You guys would love to see our talent night. You won't believe the talent on the ship. And all these type of things, we just had fun. We just had fun. So we lived in community. We didn't have to worry about COVID because we weren't even connected to the outside world. So that part of it, I always tried to keep the ship's company. Remember, you know, talk to your family back home. They can tell you what life is like back there. We're having a pretty good time here. Of course, it changed them when we start moving and we doors were open and then we were exposed to COVID. Then it was then another very different story. And that's, that's another chapter, isn't it, <laughs> Captain? Very good. One last question to you, Director, yes. to, to close off this podcast. What is set for the future for GBA, for Logos Hope? What are the plans? If you can obviously disclose the plans, sure. um, are there any projects in mind uh, that, that GBA has? I think it's exciting. Uh, I've been doing this similar type work for 35 years, almost our whole married life. And when I became part of GBA and started sailing, I thought, wow, this is so catalytic. It's so amazing what happens. And I tried to tell the, you know, the board of directors and all that. I was just a new guy on the block. I said, why don't you have a ship on every continent? 
You know what I mean? Like, this is just so amazing. Like, it's taken us 13 years to come back here. That's not fair for Malta. It's not fair for other countries in the region. And so, you know, the world still is at our doorstep. And I, I, I was very grateful that we acquired a second ship in the last couple months, that we are repairing that to stay probably more in um, Asia, Central, Southeast Asia is where that ship will remain. Uh, Logos Hope will remain more on this other side of the world. But we continue to go by region and region. And we, uh, we also go where we're invited. So there will be... Uh, countries, uh, diplomats, presidents, whomever that invite us into their countries. And so we will go where we're invited. Of course, we can't crisscross the world. But when we come into a region like the Mediterranean, we'll stay for a while and go to different places. So um, I, I think our vision, our purpose, what we do, really isn't going to change. We see it still very, very relevant to the world. And we will tweak it as we go, but we, we still see a great need, and we'll continue that um, until, until further notice, maybe. Does that make sense, Nigel? It does, it does. Yeah. Well, Director, Captain, thank you very much. Um, thank you for your, all the information. It has been a pleasure um, having this podcast with you today. And we look forward to meeting you again in the near future, obviously. And we look forward to collaborating with you further and assisting in any way that obviously we can as, as, as professionals. So thank you very much for this, for your hospitality and for hosting us on board the Logos Hope. It was a, a wonderful and a very unique experience. Thank you. Yeah. And please express our gratitude to your team as well. I know we live miles and miles and continents apart, but you know, partnership is having that sense to feel that we are a family, that we're, that we're in this together. So let them know that even though they can't be in every port with us, in a way their fingerprints are on the ship. They go with us, and, uh, and we appreciate that very much. So thank you as well. 